Welcome to Defiant Verse. It's a podcast with me, Nicole, and I talk to my friends about literature. So today I have my friend Sam. Hello. Um, and today we're going to be talking about uh, my absolute favorite book, and I think probably one of Sam's also, um, which is Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Um, and we just wanted to preface this uh, recording with, um, we are aware that this is Black History Month, and we are talking about a Black author. And just like as much as we love this book and we love this author, um, at the end of the day, we are two white people who are talking about this author. So um, if you want to look into any of Baldwin's uh, racial politics, there are some resources that I can put in uh, the description to this podcast, as well as um, reading Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, I think is a very good resource um, when looking into that. I don't know if, Sam, you have any others. Yeah, um, I remember his book, Go Tell It on the Mountain, was fantastic. Um, and there's a few documentaries um, that he's like being co-produced in. Um, he comes up a lot in a lot of American history and American literature classes. And I just think it's very cool how um, a lot of the work he did that wasn't recognized for such a long period of time is starting to be recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're also, uh, you mentioned earlier that... Uh, we're both McGill students and McGill has a calendar of their events for Black History Month. So that's something to also um, potentially look into. I have a little biography of Baldwin to go through, if that's okay, if I can start with Absolutely. That. I want to hear all about James Baldwin. Okay. Um, so James Baldwin was born in 1924. Uh, his mother left his biological father when he was quite young. Um, his stepfather didn't really treat him very well. So he spent a lot of his time uh, in libraries. And he published his first article, which was titled Harlem Then and Now, when he was 13, uh, which is quite impressive. At age 14, he did become very religious. At 17, he came to view Christianity as hypocritical and racist. Uh, He later wrote, which I I like this quite a lot, if the concept of God has any use, it is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God can't do that, it's time we got rid of him, um, which I think is quite good. And uh, so later in life, he describes himself as non-religious. Uh, he discovered he was gay during his teenage years, and that was something that he struggled with for a long time. Uh, and he left the United States at 24. He moved to Paris. Uh, he, was, he felt disillusioned by American racism. And he felt that uh, his writing would be less defined by his race if he were writing from a sort of a European expatriate uh, context. Mm, And then Go Tell It on the Mountain was his first novel. It was published in 1953. Uh, Notes of a Native Son was published in 1955. Giovanni's Room was published in 1956. Um, So that's some pretty prolific years. Uh, And Giovanni's Room was the subject of a lot of controversy when it was published because of its homoerotic, not homoerotic, but homosexual subtext, I guess. I mean, would you really call it subtext? No, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Gay romance. It is a gay romance. But I don't know. Uh, Anyway, it was pretty controversial for that because there were gay people in it. Um, Another Country and Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone were published in the 1960s. And in the 1960s, uh, he also participated in 1965 in a debate against um, 
William F. Buckley, uh, and I'd like to read out a quote from that, if that's all right. Please. Um, this is from, it's a fairly, like, I remember seeing it, I think in my, uh, at my old university, we watched a clip of this debate. And this was a quote that really stuck out to me. And I think um, this debate is quite well known also, because he did amazing. But uh, he says, it comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. And then later he says, it comes as a great shock to discover that the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. Beautiful. So that was a debate. It, it's it's mm. very um, striking. But that was a debate about um, uh, the subject was, um, was the American dream sort of built on the backs of black Americans. So I think that that is very um, poignant and striking. And he also uh, was very vocal in the civil rights movement, as we sort of mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Um, His FBI file, this is just kind of a fun fact, not very fun, actually. But his FBI file contains 1,884 pages of documents um, compared to others, which were in like a couple hundreds, that sort of range. So um, he also never fully came out as gay. Um, And in Kevin, in a a book about, um, I think it's about gay Americans. I can't remember what the actual book is. It's not just about Baldwin. Uh, but Kevin, Kevin Munford writes in his book that uh, Baldwin spent his life passing a straight rather than confronting homophobes with whom he mobilized against racism. Which is uh, quite upsetting and, and sort of, I guess, just makes you realize how, like, I guess, new this sort of, it's not a, not necessarily it's new, but the concept of intersectionality has really only become, like, very widespread in recent years because this was in you know the 1960s but i have just a little bit of biography left uh in 1987 he died of stomach cancer and i just wanted to read a bit of the eulogy that tony morrison wrote for him because i think it's very beautiful she wrote you knew didn't you how i needed your language and the mind that formed it how I relied on your fierce courage to tame wildernesses for me, how strengthened I was by the certainty that came from knowing you would never hurt me. You knew, didn't you, how I loved your love. You knew. This, then, is no calamity. No, this is jubilee. Our crown, you said, has already been bought and paid for. All we have to do, you said, is wear it. Which is just beautiful, yeah. Um... And that's just a little bit about Baldwin. Um, But we want to talk specifically about Giovanni's Room, which personally is my favorite book. I think Mm. it's the most beautiful book. It's beautifully written. It is definitely one of the more impactful books I think I've ever read. Um, Mm. Nicole, when did you read Giovanni's Room for the first time? I read it for the first time in 2019 in a summer 20th century novel course. Wow. Um, I read it um, because I had a friend who was very cool and queer and recommended me the book was an English major before I like Mm. entered university. 
Um, I read it in grade 12 um, while eating an entire pizza um, at like a pizza place. And I read it in one sitting and it kind of just blew my mind. And I never encountered language that beautiful before. No, that's exactly what I, that's one of the things I loved about it so much was that sort of it's, it's written so beautifully. And I, anytime someone's like, oh, do you have any, you know, as an English major, what book recommendations do you have? I'm like, Giovanni's Room. It's the most beautifully written thing I've read. Giovanni's Room was written in the 50s. Um, and it's inspired a lot by James Baldwin's actual visits to Paris. Um, it is about an American expatriate um, who decided to just travel to Paris and he gets very involved in the um, gay subculture in Paris. Um, he is, I believe, slated to be married to this woman named Hella, who's extremely interesting um, and is currently traveling in Spain. Um, and during his time in Paris, he falls in love with a very handsome Italian bartender named Giovanni. Um, I don't know about you, but when I first read this book, I was like, when is Ryan Murphy going to oh my God. Um, adapt this? <laughs> I'm like, wait, this is like, this is who I can imagine like Matt Bomer is going to be Giovanni or <laughs> Mark Ruffalo. I don't know. <laughs> I think Mark Ruffalo at this point, I'm sorry, is a little too old to be yeah. Giovanni. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the book just basically, um, without giving anything away, um, is essentially how the relationship functions and also like it, the kind of like inevitable tragedy of the relationship. It's like tragic from the beginning, you know, it's going to end poorly. Um, mm -hmm. So it's this like slow burn of him falling in love with Giovanni while also grappling with this shame and self-loathing. How was that? I think that was perfect. I think that's that's how I would describe it. Do you have any passages that you'd like to share to just start us off? I have one. Okay. Um, I'll have to find it. I definitely have it on my phone because um, I've saved the image. I went on, you know, like Goodreads or whatever and found this quote because I think about it so much. And I think um, there's so many quotes in it that I want to talk about, but this is just the most beautiful one. And can I read it out? It's a bit long. It's a bit of a long passage. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm very, I'm all ears. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Amazing. It's near the beginning. Um, Until I die, there will be these moments, moments seeming to rise up out of the ground like Macbeth's witches, when his face will come before me, that face in all its changes, when the exact timbre of his voice and tricks of his speech will nearly burst my ears, when his smell will overpower my nostrils. Sometimes, in the days which are coming, God grant me the strength to live them. In the glare of the gray morning, sour mouth, eyelids raw and red, hair tangled and damp from my stormy sleep, facing over coffee and cigarette smoke, last night's impenetrable, meaningless boy, who will shortly rise and vanish like the smoke, I will see Giovanni again, as he was that night, so vivid, so winning, all of the light of that gloomy tunnel trapped around his head. And that's one of my favorite things I've ever read. Wow. Yeah. What I about also you? <laughs> wanted to say, I wanted to say, and like, might as well say this in the middle of the podcast mm -hmm. rather than not say it at all. But thank you for mm -hmm. having me on your show today. Oh, thank you. I'm so stoked. Literally, when you were like, can we talk about Giovanni's room? I was like, absolutely. Yeah. This is, um, there's nothing I want more. 
Um, we've also talked about how I think we need to actually do a podcast together. That's just the two of us. And we talk every time. Yeah, this is, this is our, um, <laughs> this is like the test flavor. Like you go to the yeah, ice cream yeah. store, get like a few mm-hmm. scoops of like the very fun, like mojito flavored ice cream. Yeah. And then you get a whole cone. This is the tip of yeah. the iceberg. This is um, our pilot. Yeah, this is our pilot. This is our pilot. Yeah. A spec um, script. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, you have some quotes to share as well, I believe. Well, you can't see. The listeners can't see, but my Giovanni's room is <laughs> covered. So sticky noted. <laughs> yeah. It almost is illegible. Um, I want to share a quote from the middle of the story um, in okay. which David has, our protagonist David, an American expatriate, has began his um, affair with Giovanni. Um, and is commenting a lot on gender roles. Um, mm. And I know, I think I know which you, quote you're talking about. Well, you can just like subtly nod as I read it, if it okay. is the quote you think I'm talking okay. about. And then I at will. the end, I'll be sure to. Yeah, I'll let our listeners know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I invented in myself a kind of pleasure in playing the housewife after Giovanni had gone to work. I threw out the paper, the bottles the fantastic accumulation of trash. I examined the contents of the innumerable boxes and suitcases and disposed of them. But I am not a housewife. Men can never be housewives. Um, And I found that passage just, A, beautifully, beautifully sad. Yeah. Um, B, like so emblematic of like the major themes of the book that I'm sure we'll get into of like the shame and self-loathing mm. all to do with gender norms and um, like the way a heteronormative society raises you to believe that there is no such thing as a queer relationship because you've never seen a queer relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicole, but before I, we unpack that further, was that the quote? Yeah, it was. Knew it. <laughs> I was like, because because we've both written. Did you write a paper on this book or on a different Baldwin book? Oh, I did on this book. Okay, you just said Baldwin novel, and I was like, oh, which one? But we so because I use that quote in my paper, <laughs> so I, I remember it. Um, wait, what was your paper on Giovanni's room about? Um, it was all about um how like the root of David's shame in the book. Um, Like I basically wrote that um, he feels shame because he's not the ideal man. He doesn't have like a a heteronormative lifestyle and he can, he knows he can never really have a heteronormative lifestyle. Um, But at the same time, he's not the ideal woman because even when he's with Giovanni and taking on the more feminine role, he is so self-conscious and has so much shame built up inside of him that he can never really like, even says this in the book, he can never really give himself to Giovanni. He can never embrace himself fully. Um, there's another beautiful quote. Oh dear, if I could find it. Um, <laughs> just about how there's a love for him and also a hate and it's nourished by the same roots. I know. Were you going to say that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, now I can't find it. Um, I believe I actually have it quoted in my, in the I have it in my essay too. <laughs> um, Let's see who gets no. to it first. Yeah. It's a drink. 
With this fearful intimation, there opened in me a hatred for Giovanni, which was as powerful as my love, and which was nourished by the same roots. Yeah, I have that underlined in mine. I read it and I, I was like, this is important. That's powerful. Very much so. Um, I remember talking in my class when we discussed this book about how it's like David has this sort of like his sexuality is it's almost it's like um, like a classical Greek view in in that, you know, that sort of view that like loving men is manly because they just hate mm-hmm. women. Um, and they both hate women. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I think an, that, yeah. yeah. Like I know in, um, in the, uh, near the beginning, I think he sees, uh, it's either drag queens or, or trans women. The language sort of makes it vague, but he sort of, he has this like hatred for them because he views them as, you know, just men performing femininity and he's disgusted by that. Yeah, um, I don't want to like read that passage aloud because I know exactly what passage you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think it's very important. Like at the same time, he has like this bitter self-awareness of his own self-hatred, like Mm -hmm. the same chapter in which he's first arrives in Paris and is like thrown into the gay scene. Um, He describes meeting his friend, uh, an American businessman named Jack. And Mm -hmm. I underlined this because I was so like, um, like just my in- inner English high school student that like wants to find the central themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote, I understand how the contempt I felt for him involved my self-contempt. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and it, 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 it's hard to put it into words, but that I think is, is such like part of what is so, this book is so sad. Um, mm. But it's part of what's so heartbreaking is that sort of, you know, that is, um especially at the time that that was this was written and the time at which it takes place like that is such a common thing is that you know there's that sort of um that closeted gay like self-hatred I don't know and And I guess but that's also it's also difficult because you know again like it's sort of homosexual I guess in this sort of like classical Greek way in that you know they hate women so it's, it's, you know, it, it's very, I don't know, it's very two-sided. I don't really know what I'm saying or where I'm going with this. Yeah. And no, I, I totally know what you mean. Like there's, I think one thing that really struck me about this book or one thing that was very hard to stomach about this book, I would even say, was the blatant misogyny. Mm-hmm. Um, because just like David has these all incredibly high expectations for a man, like those expectations involve the subjugation and the ownership and yes. dominance over woman. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. it's so like, it's so interesting because we often talk about like how like toxic masculinity or um, like traditional gender roles are harmful for women. But I think this book really hammers in the point how it's harmful for everyone. No. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Sorry. I said no, but I meant yes. <laughs> um yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a really, um, that's a really important point that it is, you know, he's, he is part of this toxic masculinity, but it's mm. also so harmful to him. Um, 
Men can so never be housewives. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I wrote my paper on queerness in space. Um, which is, yeah. Which is probably the most obvious thing you could write about in this book because the title is literally Giovanni's Room. Um, but it also but, sounds like a title for like a really good movie adaptation that tries mm. to set Giovanni's Room in space queerness in space queerness in space <laughs> so why I did like you that. choose that topic why did you choose that topic i uh well um and lots of critics who also read this book read the room obviously like not obviously i don't want to say like obviously and then someone will be like oh that didn't occur to me but i read giovanni's room as a closet um so i really wanted to talk about especially because i actually like um, I didn't realize this, I guess. It was when it was at a time when I was sort of coming out that I wanted. This was my first paper that I wrote about like queer issues. So I was like, I'm going to read like Eve Sedgwick and that sort of stuff. Um, and I actually told my prof when I went to her office hours to talk about it. Um, I said, oh, you know, I wanted to talk about uh, closet theory and I don't know where to start because everything I know about the closet is kind of just from personal experience. Um, so that was a little awkward and I came out to my prof a little bit by accident. Um, but that was just something that was very striking. And a lot of my quotes that I underlined in the book are about the mapping of queerness onto space and that sort of, especially like, you know, he, um, he sort of, and in Eve Kosovsky's Sedgwick, have you read Epistemology of the Closet? It's it's come up in my degree about like three or four times. Yeah, I think I've read it once. Um, but do you want to do like a brief summary for our, for our listeners? Um, I don't know if I could do a summary of the whole thing, but I definitely I think one of the things that struck me the most well, a few things I guess. One is that you sort of enter the closet when you are becoming self aware of your sexuality, and then you exit the closet when others become aware. Um, and I think the second most important thing from that is that um, coming out of the closet is a never-ending thing, um, which I think is is really um, a big part, or at least a big part of what I took from that essay, which um, is very true. Um, but basically, because I was like, well, you know, with Giovanni, he enters, he stays in Giovanni's room when he's sort of discovering his feelings for Giovanni. And he leaves Giovanni's room when he is sort of found out, I guess, by Hella. And he actually says, he says, I need to get out of Giovanni's room. And she says, you're out. Um, which I underlined, I think, like five times in my book, because I was like, that is mm. a very, a very, and it's, it's so in, like, because obviously closet theory wasn't like, a thing when Baldwin wrote this book, but it's so clearly like can so clearly be read as you're out like of the closet. Yeah. And I guess that David's doubt kind of really easily summarizes that the fact that he doesn't feel like he's out. Yeah. He, yeah. That's such a good point. I never read it that way. Oh, I, that's, that was what first like came to mind. Maybe it was as someone who was like coming out at yeah. the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Say more about your essay because now I'm invested. Ooh, okay. I have it here. I can pull it up. Um, 
what else did I talk about? Um, ooh, I um, I talked about there's a this sort of imagery of the sea it, throughout the book, and he sort of says that time feels like water. So that is another another really interesting topic would be like queerness and time. But that sort of, you know, it's not only is Giovanni's room well, the closet is. Um, a sort of protection. It's like a safe space where you can um, be queer. Um, so there's that sort of, you know, they paint the windows with that sort of white paint so that the light comes in, but people can't see into the room, um, mm. which I thought was very much this sort of um, making it into like, for lack of a better word, like a safe space. I remember there was also Wait, I feel like, I feel like, can I guess what one of the quotes was in your essay? You definitely can. Okay, because I remember, I think part, part two begins with saying, I remember that life in the room seemed to be occurring beneath the sea. Time flowed yes. past differently. So I've heard queer time so many times, like, sorry, I've heard queer time so many times. Um, <laughs> that is a tongue twister. Um, that's not fair that I have to say that sentence. Um <laughs> But I've never actually like understood or like what that means. What do you think? What does that mean to you? I'm not going to lie. I don't either. Uh, my my guess is as good as yours. Um, I just, I to me that like in the context of like queer spaces, I sort of read that as, you know, they're cut off from the rest of the world and mm. they're, they're sort of isolated. Um, but I don't know. I would I would love to read more about queer time because um I honestly it hasn't come up in a lot of my degree I've had the concept explained to me by my friend Ty who's in cultural studies um as this idea by a scholar whose name I do not currently know but I will cite in the description of this podcast um that the idea that when you're queer like a lot of major milestones in life occur a lot later right Mm because Like most queer people come out sometimes in their teens, sometimes in their 20s, sometimes in late adulthood. And I think our whole world, like even 50 years or 70 years after Giovanni's room, still still functions kind of secretly by that calendar. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you've ever experienced this, but like talking to... um, my straight friends like there's this like unspoken idea of this will happen at this age and then this age Mm -hmm. it's socially acceptable to do this and I think that really doesn't that's very like I don't think that works in the queer world I think there's too much else going on I I think you're so right like I think you know um, just thinking about like personally, I'm like the first time I kissed a boy was a lot later than like lots of my friends. And as it turns out, that's because I didn't really want to kiss boys, you know, like, and then, you know, the first time I actually got to like be in a relationship with someone. Yeah. I think that does happen a lot later in life. Those like major, especially romantic, um, obviously, but like those sort of major milestones, those happen a lot later just because first you have to figure that out because it's sort of, you're not the default. So you need to take that time to figure that out before you can, do you know what I mean? Did that make sense? Yeah. And like also how a lot of the things, like, I guess this also relates to Giovanni's room because 
a lot of the reason David feels shame is because he hasn't unlearned that stuff, you know? Yes. This idea that like, it's okay to clean up, clean up after your partner. It doesn't make you a housewife. It doesn't make you a lesser. Mm -hmm. No, I think, yeah, that's very true. Um, And that is, you know, like, um, especially when you consider like, he's like engaged to be married to this Mm. woman. And, and she's then, cool. She's interesting. She's cool. Yeah. Yeah. She is very interesting for sure. Um, but then, you know, and then he has a relationship with this man and then there's sort of that, um, perhaps that's his first relationship that he, well, you know, it's very complicated, but you know, it's sort of like, he's on this like, you know, heterosexual timeline almost. And then um, I don't know where I'm going with this. No, I know exactly what you mean. Like, (laughs) no, no, no. I think, I think I'm just going to finish your, your thought, but then you have to tell me if that is where you were going with this. Okay. There's that line at the beginning of like, he fell in love with Hella, I believe her name is, um, because he needed something to be moored to. Mm. And then there's that other scene later in the book where he's walking around Paris late at night and he's looking at all the windows and the lights in the windows And he's like, I can imagine myself safe in my room with my woman putting the children to bed. Like he has this like ingrained idea again and again and again of who he should be. And it's just Mm -hmm. so painful. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, yes, that's very much where I was going. Um, And I think that's a really... I guess, important thing to talk about with this book, but also just like queerness in general. Like I know that like, you know, compat, like compulsory heterosexuality, like that's something that even like very recently, it's something that I've, you know, I'm like, well, I can see myself with a man, but is it because I want to be with a man or because I see that as the future I want, you know, I see myself bringing someone home to meet my parents Mm -hmm. Like that my parents will really, and you know, I've, I'm out to my parents and they're very supportive. Um, but I'm still sort of like, I feel like there's this thing, there's this specific type of life that I'm supposed to live and I'm supposed to bring home a specific type of person to meet my parents and meet my family. And that person is a man. Hmm. I actually, there's one, literally like the one quote that I really wanted to talk about though, during like when we talk about this book was when David says, I wonder about the size of Giovanni's cell. I wonder if it is bigger than his room. Um, which like reading that, like, um, like broke my heart a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, just in that, you know, he's, Oh no, this is a spoiler. (laughs) Well, it's not a spoiler because he says it in the beginning. He He says it in the first chapter. You're right. You're right. Okay. So, we know that Giovanni is in jail. Um, we just don't know what for. But um, page five. I page five. So yeah. it's unless you know you you're really not invested in this book, then it's not a spoiler. Um, but I think that's um, that's just so heartbreaking to read because you know it is sort of he, uh, there's this sort of idea that you know Giovanni is like in jail but he's at least he's not confined to his room anymore and confined to like 
his queerness, I guess, isn't confined to just the safe space that they've created. Like he, he feels as if, you know, the closet, Giovanni's room is so constricting that jail is preferable. Mm. Um, which is, it's so sad. And, you know, throughout the book, he, he makes references to, he says that the room isn't big enough for two. And he, he feels very, you know, it's, it's their space, but it's, it's so confining. Um, and that is a lot of why I read Giovanni's room as being representative of the closet. Mm. And I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that interpretation because like this idea of just like, I don't know, like you think about gay bars, you think about like, even like growing up, like I did drama as a kid and like drama was my Giovanni's room. Mm. Like that was a place where you could experiment. It's a place where you can adopt a more feminine vocal register for a role. Um, I remember also camp was kind of like that for me, summer camp growing up. Um, And I just feel like Obviously, the stakes are very different um, growing up in the 21st century in a liberal part of North America than 1950s Paris. Yeah. Um, But I think that's something a lot of queer people can relate to is that, like, almost ethereal space where you you can let your guard down. Do you relate to that? I do. I I definitely do. But I also sort of uh, that aspect of how some of those spaces, especially, you know, the closet can be mm-hmm. confining because I remember when I was sort of starting to come out and it was sort of like, and you know, some people go like, and this is a, a topic of a lot of discussion. Some people go their whole lives without actually coming out. And that's mm-hmm. just, if that's how you want to live your life and then that's great for you. But for me, it was just this sort of like, I felt like confined in, you know, just being queer in my spaces. I was like, I want to be queer. Like, you know, I want to be openly gay to my parents. I want to be openly gay to my family. Like it's, it's, Mm -hmm. so I get that sort of kind of, you know, these spaces are like amazing and a place where you can practice your queerness, but at the same time they can feel confining. Hmm. Um, Yeah. It's heavy stuff. It really is. I feel like I read this book and like, I kind of like revisiting this now for the podcast, like it's just hitting me again, how sad it is. And also oh. just like the drama of it all. Yeah. It's, um, I've said this five times, but it's, it's the most beautifully written thing I've ever read. I have like, I, since I started studying literature, when I read for fun, I even, I also underline my quotes in my books and I just, it's full of underlying quotes. Every, like, I don't know, every word of this is so beautifully written and it's, and it's also so sad. (laughs) And it's also, you know, there's some, obviously some aspects are, I can't, you know, I can't relate to being a a gay man, clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can't relate to being in 1950s Paris and being a closeted gay man, but I, I can relate to some of those aspects of the closet. And I think that's part of why this book like really struck me was those sort of descriptions of Giovanni's room as the closet and as, you know, a space where you can be free, but it, it it's also, it can also be confining. Um, 
And that's part of what's so sad about it. Um, you know, even when he's sort of in this room that's supposed to be a haven, it's it's not, though. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's like, I guess like it really just hammers in the point of how how confining like what i found interesting about this book is how a lot of the homophobia came from the main character not from the external world yeah and that that struck me as so like interesting because it makes you think about like i know tony morrison writes about this in in the bluest eye about how Mm -hmm. like the media you grow up with affects how you view yourself Mm, and the society yeah. you grow up in doesn't just like affect your your worry of actual physical danger but also your own way of looking at the world you know mm-hmm. yeah no that's yeah that's another thing that's you know quite upsetting about the book is that sort of that internalized homophobia and that mm. again like a lot of his um not all of them, because certainly it's hard to be openly gay in 1950s Paris, but a lot of his issues can sort of be traced back to his own views, I guess. Mm-hmm. And those sorts of views that have been ingrained, you know, because of this, you know, culture of toxic masculinity. And this sort of loops back to what you were talking about, about how it doesn't just affect, you know, it's not just affecting women. Yeah, and, and speaking of of woman, can we talk about Hella for a little bit? Because she is so cool. She's cool. Yeah. Um, I felt bad for her. I felt bad for her in the book, for sure. I felt bad for her, but I also thought, like, like, okay, hot take. I find oftentimes in, like, gay romances, especially, like, the more tragic ones, mm-hmm. um, I always end up feeling really bad for the main character's wife, like Anne Hathaway in Brokeback Mountain or mm-hmm. um, the, the, the Marcia in Call Me By Your Name. I don't know that. Oh, that? yeah, her. Yeah. Um, can I just say, I watched Brokeback Mountain over Christmas break for the first time. Um, Did it ring you? Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, and do you know it was filmed in Alberta? Because it was. It was filmed in Alberta? Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, like Brokeback Mountain, I'm wondering if even like, I know it was originally a short story, but like, there's so much like, one thing I also love about this book, in addition to like the strong female character, which I can get into a little bit later, is also Mm -hmm. like, it is so much, this is probably like the oldest text that is like openly queer that I've read Mm -hmm. in my life. I know there's been like pulp romances that were pretty big before this but in like regular academia and like main I don't want to say mainstream but like books that I've encountered and like most people I know will at least have heard of this is probably the oldest like LGBT book Mm. I think definitely like um when I try to think of like the oldest I guess it's it's hard to say because we're always sort of um like language is changing and stuff. Like for example, I was like I was thinking about uh I think the earliest LGBT book that I've read is The Well of Loneliness. Oh true. Um, but in that uh in that book it's sort of they still she still uses the term invert, 
which is um, an outdated term now. But um, so there's that sort of, you know, it, it's it's hard. It's hard to say like when because I don't know where I'm trying to yeah. go here. But it's like even in like Giovanni's room, like the language he uses to describe again, like um, they're either drag queens or trans women. We don't know because of the language she uses and the language she uses is, is awful. Um, but well, I suppose you could even go further back. Like you could argue like 12th night is queer, mm-hmm. but I definitely think, yeah. It's I definitely, I think um, this, like comparing this to, for example, the earliest, you know, queer novel I I've read was the well of loneliness. I think this mm-hmm. is much more um, similar, I guess, to an evolving queer community because there isn't, there isn't one in the well of loneliness for sure. Like, but in here, like they have like gay bars and stuff and a sort of underground gay community. And that's something I didn't know. That's a history I didn't know about. I think before Miguel, I yeah. think, I feel like had I not taken these history courses, these literature courses, I think I would have thought, oh, it began at Stonewall. Stone, sorry, right. Stonewall um, in 1969. And before that, gay people were just kind of in the shadows, sipping martinis um, and just trying to, like, I think this book also really illuminated to me, like, how long this has probably been going on, but covertly. Mm-hmm. Um and that's something that I've been really lucky to have time to explore in my academics. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything you want to add to that? Um, I could go on for so long. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's something that I've talked to with a, like um, I've talked about this with a lot of people, um, especially recently for whatever reason. Um, but that's sort of, you know, we only really start to see queer representation in, you know, openly queer representation in like novels of the 20th century. But, and there's this sort of, you know, more stubborn people will sort of say, well, it's a, it's a, it's a new thing. Like it's the new cool thing or whatever. It's sort of like a fad or a trend, but it's like, queer people have always existed. It's it's just that we haven't, you know, sometimes we haven't had the words to describe it or we haven't had the community to, you know, be a part of. So I don't know, just that sort of, um, that view that, you know, oh, everybody's gay nowadays. It's like, everyone's always been gay, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I know what you mean. Like, especially like, even in like, just based on the history courses I've taken, like alone, like we talk so much about ancient Greek ideals of like, Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, like that there was homosexuality, but it worked differently. It functioned by its own rules. Or like you look at a lot of Canadian indigenous cultures, the idea of a two-spirited person. And like, Mm -hmm. I, I just think it's interesting how I don't know. I just think it's an endlessly cool thing to study, like how it's been labeled, how it's been changed, how our understanding of it has changed. I don't know. It's just cool. I, th- I think it's so cool. And I think like um, this is segueing a little bit, if that's okay. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Amazing. Um, 
like I've voiced a little bit of like frustration with like I I think about all the time how during the AIDS crisis the like the queer community like we we lost an entire generation which like and that's you know I think that that's it's almost as if um we're not rebuilding like there's definitely a lot of stuff still in place from you know for like stonewall mm-hmm. but like you know there's this sort of lack of um like i've sort of voiced my frustration with like um this sort of micro labeling i guess and it's like that you know we don't have like we've sort of lost an entire generation that to them it's like that wasn't important like labeling for labeling yourself is great, but telling people that they can't label themselves as X, Y, Z is like, that wasn't it. Like, you know, for example, like um, you could call yourself like lesbian was just, you know, women who love other women. And it, it could be, you know, like a bisexual woman, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of frustration I have, especially with this sort of micro labeling and this focus on that when I think that, you know, um, and queer is a label that I I know I have some friends who don't like to use it, um, but I personally really love because as someone who sort of struggled, I was like, well, first I thought I was, you know, this, and then I thought I was this, and then it's sort of something I struggle with. And like queer is just like, I personally love to use to describe myself because it's a very um it could include you know that sort of even if you're just questioning yeah it gives you room to move exactly yeah like and i've also, had people yeah. oh sorry go ahead no i'm done um but wait i want to <laughs> finish your point because i'm invested in okay. your story okay <laughs> like girl <laughs> like i've had people tell me they're like oh i want to you know um go to more like gay or queer events but you know I I'm not sure if I'm gay I'm like you don't have to be like you should just it should just be a space for you to go and then just be able to explore that like I I hate this sort of like exclusionary thing that we've developed and I think that is a result of again going back to like losing basically an entire generation who were very open and welcoming and weren't as concerned with labels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> just like there was a lot there, and like my, yeah, there was my a lot. brain is trying to like grapple that. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know because I guess like in the book, in the book, I don't think he ever uses those labels. Mm-mm. And I think what you said is totally right. Like. I have a lot of friends who are like bisexual and like will like they face their own unique set of challenges because like you're with someone of the opposite gender, but you're still bisexual mm-hmm. or someone who is like, like uncertain about their sexuality or like don't, I guess some people like, I know a lot of people come out as bi before they come out as gay or they, come out as gay and then decide not decide um discover they Mm -hmm. are bisexual later in life and like I know at least me personally I used to have that same hesitance to the word queer but I think maybe seeing like what's going on with my friends and seeing like 
how the world kind of unfolds, like for many people, it's a really good umbrella term. Exactly. And I think uh, I know like some people do sort of take issue with it. For example, in like, um, if you see like, this is a lesbian and her wife, like some people will say, oh, a queer person and their partner. It's like, no, that's, that's two women they're in love. You know, Mm. it can sort of, but I think it is, I love, I love the word queer. And I use the word gay as well to, um, not quite in a, in a, um, what's the word? Synonym. Um, but definitely like, I know that gay has sort of evolved to be not, you know, exclusively homosexual, but, you know, just part of the community. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's like endlessly complicated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because <laughs> like also queer is still for some people a slur. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is why I guess I was hesitant to use that um, when I came to McGill because it kind of felt like why reclaim something when there's other language there. But then again, mm-hmm. I I think for other people, like lesbian or gay feels too rigid a box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I'm not talking about Giovanni's room. I know. I'm like, we stopped talking <laughs> about Giovanni's room. We could go back if you'd like. I just, I went on a rant there. and then we No, but talking. I felt like that was necessary. That was yeah. necessary. Because when else, when else do you get to talk about these things too? Like, you know, like I feel that's why queer spaces are necessary. This is, this is a queer space. This is a queer. Cyberspace. No, and that's what's so interesting. Like that, I think, I think I don't really love theory just in general because it's just hard for me to digest. But I think theories of like queer spaces and how they don't, they don't have to be literally limited to a physical space. I think that's cool. Um, like this, this podcast recording right now, this is like a queer space. I don't know. That's maybe I don't understand queer theory very well. Yeah, I feel like I don't know. <laughs> but like you know how like you know for example i think it's like like there are like zoom like drag shows and it's like all these like queer spaces have moved into like cyberspace i think the theory of like queer spaces in the internet i think is is very interesting sure like i um i often look at like subreddits i think can be really helpful Mm. sometimes like um like I often think about like a lot of queer people don't get a proper sexual education and that's really, yes. really damaging. Like not just mm-hmm. for the spread of STIs, but also understanding that like, like the importance of a consent, but be like, um, just like, I don't know. I just feel like a lot of my, sex ed like i remember everything that could have been lgbt was reserved and sorry i use the word lgbt and queer interchangeably a lot in this podcast and me too yeah yeah, it's okay um was reserved to like a chapter in a textbook Mm -hmm. i don't know about you but like in toronto that's what it was and everything else was kind of gathered along the way halfway through reddit halfway through word of mouth halfway through knowledge of just like pop culture um 
And I think it's really important for like young LGBT people to, to find like a healthy sex ed. What what do you think about that? What was your experience? Oh, my experience is I went to Catholic school. Um, Um, (laughs) So (laughs) there was no sex ed, even for straight people. Um, But I remember the, the day that I was like, I'm not sure that Catholicism is for me because we went on a tour of the church and lots of things. This was a very big day, but I'll, I'll talk about the, the gay specific aspect, which was that they basically said, um, we love gay people. Some of my friends are gay, of course. Um, but they can't get married in the Catholic church because um, when you have sex, you need to be open to welcoming a child into the world. Um, so no birth control. Um, and gay people can't do that. So they can't get married. But they, basically they were like, we love gay people, but they can never get married in the Catholic church. Um, and but beyond that, there was no like, no, like, mention, like, I know for me, like, it's really important to learn about the importance of safe sex. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. I learned all that through, like, um, my school's GSA. Oh, good. Um, yeah, we had, we had some uh, sessions, which were, um, which were really important and really helpful. But it, um, it sucks that I had to go to my GSA for that. I wish that had just been included as a default. Like, you know, if there's if there's a queer person who is attending sex ed just at school and they don't get sex ed that's particular to them, they have to go seek that out. Whereas all the straight people just get it by default just because they're straight. No, it's a good point. Um, yeah. And like, I think it's even there is value in learning that stuff, even if you're not of that identity. Like one day I might raise a child and that child might be a woman, might be a lesbian might be someone who is not the same experiences as me. And like, I want to be able to, I want to have that knowledge, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I'm very grateful that I was able to get the, you know, queer sex ed that I received through my school's GSA, but it's it sort of, it frustrates me that that's where I had to get it and that, you know, it was accessible to me, but maybe not to, you know, a closeted gay kid who wasn't even comfortable attending the GSA. And then mm. that information is not available to them. Oh, sex ed. <laughs> sex ed, hey. That is an endlessly thorny. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone will ever. <laughs> um, okay, wait. I am going to like this segue has turned into like. <laughs> San Francisco, like there's just like it's Silicon Valley. There's segways everywhere. Mm, um, I feel like lost in segways. I do want to bring it back to Giovanni's room. That's Um, so fair. (laughs) (laughs) Not that it's allowed. It's queer time. It's queer space. Um, Queer time. It's queer time. Um, there was one other quote I just wanted to bring up, and I just like want to know if you have any other closing. Mm quotes um let me just bring it oh it's their big fight yes 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 oh it's okay so this is the quote i want to leave in Mm -hmm. okay um 
and it's Giovanni saying this to David. It's a big fight. Um, it is a bit of a spoiler. Um, so if like listeners want to skip over this, just fair warning. Um, it's Giovanni saying this to David, and he says, You do not, cried Giovanni, sitting up. Love anyone. You never have loved anyone. I'm sure you never will. You love your purity. You love your mirror. You are just like a little virgin. You walk around with your hands in front of you as though you had some precious metal, gold, silver, rubies, maybe diamonds down there between your legs. And then it goes, you do not want to stink, not even for five minutes in the meantime. And I just think that like summarizes how important it is to talk about sex and in a safe way and like in a non-judgmental way. And like, obviously, I don't think James Baldwin intended that passage as being about the importance of sex ed, um, but our conversation made me link the two, like, and I just found it really beautiful and again, just so, so tragic. Yeah. Um, How about you? I'm looking. I'm, I have so many. There's And there's so many things I'm finding quotes and I'm like, oh, I should have talked about that, but we've also been talking for an hour. I could go on forever, but... Um, I'm trying to think. I I think that um, a lot of my quotes that I have underlined are definitely highlighting that um, that aspect of the room is confining. And on on the same page, this is page eighty eight um, of our version. Um, he says both, "I was to destroy this room and give to Giovanni a new and better life." And then later he says, uh, when it was over, I lay in the dark and listened to his breathing and dreamed of the touch of hands of Giovanni's hands or anybody's hands, hands which would have the power to crush me and make me whole again. Um, Mm. So that sort of um, desiring to, you know, he wants to destroy the room and sort of rebuild a new life out of that. So that sort of emphasis on that rebuilding I guess and that sort of um I guess that again emphasizes that sort of what I've been talking about basically this entire time which is that you know confining aspect of the room and of you know the room which can be read as a closet um and wanting what the hands want to crush him and hold him at the same time um they they're supposed to um oh I lost my page oh 88 um, have the power to crush me and make me whole again. So like that sort of, um, it's at the very bottom of the page. Yeah. It's the same one as it's the same paragraph as men can never be housewives. There we go. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's gorgeous. It's, it's so beautiful. Literally there's, there's so many, like, you know, I have, I felt here's another, here's another quote. I was guilty and irritated and full of love and pain. I wanted to kick him and I wanted to take him in my arms. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that Mm. conflicting. I love him and I hate him, which we emphasize a lot earlier on. He's like Javert. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's literally like Javert. Like I even think I said this in my essay, like he walks around the Seine in Paris and like, I must, but I mustn't, I must, but I mustn't. And like, just can't like, can't just like he just lives in a world in which he can't conform and he doesn't have a place you know yeah um 
Definitely. And it's, oh, it's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. I love this book. Me too. And like, I also just want to say like, again, thank you so much for having me. Just like you never, students never get an opportunity to just talk about a book they like for an hour. Um, And like, I also know that I'm not an expert on anything. um, And like, I also think we touched upon a lot of really heavy subjects. So like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so if, if it's okay with you, I might message some like LGBT resources um, to include in the podcast link, but also just at yeah. the end of the day, thanks for, this is so cool. I love this book. Oh, I love this book too. I'm so glad it, it, it made me so happy that you were like, I want to talk about this book. I was like, Oh, thank God. Me too. Um and I, yeah, I think we did. Um, obviously, we're not experts on anything, um, but I, I think it. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought now. We, we, we touched on a, on on a lot of stuff, which was heavy, but also um, quite important to talk about. And we did go uh, on a few segues, but um, we came back to the book, and I we think came back to it. <laughs> <laughs> we got back at the end of the day. At the end of the podcast, we read some quotes. Um, so officially it's a literature podcast, even though for about 15 minutes we were talking about gay sex ed, which is very important. Yeah. Very important. Um, yeah. 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 Thanks again. Thank you so much. Um, all right. Anything else, any, any final things to add before I stop the recording? Read more James Baldwin. Yes. Everyone please read James Baldwin. Um, all right. Thank you.